Hey everybody, welcome back to Terminus, the uh, uh, Polivia brand stopwatch of Extreme Metal Podcasts. I am the Death Metal Guy, a.k.a. listening to Manowar, but only for the gains. And I am the Black Metal Guy, currently wearing my Manowar sleeveless for the gains. A.k.a. Hiring Chinese slave labor to write Metal Archives reviews for me so that Forest Poetry can finally take its place as the highest rated black metal album of all time, surpassing Bathory's Under the Sign of the Black Mark and Burzum's Vislicitaros. But first of all, it's it's absolutely not better than Vislicitaros, which is probably one of the best black metal albums of all time. <laughs> well, unfortunately, Death Metal Guy, I've got... um. 263 Chinese employees who would disagree with you. <laughs> You're just kind of mechanical turking your way to victory on that. <laughs> um, yeah, that's... Uh, which which Man of War shirt do you have? Um, I have, obviously, Hail to England! I, yeah, I thought... I, I think I've seen you with that one before, the Hail to England shirt. I am... Uh, I, I am wearing a dead infection surgical disembowelment shirt, so got to got to represent our uh, our mid nineties Polish gore grind. Um, all right, so guys, uh, this happens once a year, but this is the last episode before our summer break. It's uh, it's coming a little bit later in the year than we usually do it. Usually we shoot for like June going into July, but in this case, the black metal guy has a big move coming, so we tried to time it out for that. So uh, basically, we'll do this episode. We'll be off for two weeks, and we will be back with our regularly scheduled programming. Black metal guy, are you excited? What if we were off for three weeks? <laughs> is that what you'd prefer? <laughs> I, I think it's often what happens anyway to both of us at the end of the two-week period when we do this. It's We've gone a long time without the break. I think we should do three, bro. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. You know, because what happens is we always plan these things and then either something gets in the way and has to extend or we just feel the itch and we're like, now nah, let's just come back. So. That, that is that is true. Sometimes we do just go for it. Um, yeah, they can't keep us away for too long. Um, yeah. But, um, so yes, I am very much excited for a break, dude. How about you? Oh, no, I, I, I was asking for, for your move. You got your, oh, your, your big thing, big things coming, you know, eight second well, Facebook video. <laughs> well, you know, like you, Death Metal Guy, I'm a very negative person. So primarily I'm just stressed out. <laughs> uh, but, uh, the, um, the prospect of being moved in and then being able to get, get a nice change of scenery that is, you know. That is uh, exciting. That um, that is good. Yeah, I'm glad yes. to hear it. Um, yeah, and um, yeah. So uh, and I'll be moving in with my lady, which is nice. Oh, very nice. Uh, everyone can have a little a little applause break for the black metal guy right there. Ooh, I I swear I have a real girlfriend. <laughs> She's not anime. She's real. Yeah. Uh, no, no. That it, I'm I'm really looking forward to that part. And uh, then you know, and and really, it's just you know, uh, wherever I may roam, where <laughs> I may, lay my head is home. Oh, yeah, yeah. God, fucking uh, terrible. Um, Anyways, that that is a fucking awful song. <laughs> yes, um, it is. That that's a good example of a, a reckless snake charmer riff. Oh, that is true. Yeah. Anyway, speaking of um, 
Speaking of mana war and hails, I thought we should do a quick, um, uh, a quick final salute to Cromlech. I heard rumors about this, but apparently it's true mm-hmm. uh, that uh, David Baron, the really the founder of Cromlech, who mm-hmm. got got them together in the first place with Roman, um, is uh, leaving the band. I think he's uh, you know I think he's moving or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they are going to continue the band with their, you know, continue the band man down, um, but uh, rename it in order to honor, you know, uh, Cromlech as a specific entity. Yeah, uh, I heard about that. I talked to Baron about it a little bit. It's, it's as confirmed, it's not an acrimonious thing. It's just like logistics, been a long time, got some kids to take care of, the usual. Um so yeah, it's I, I'm I'm glad that he's going out on a high note, and I'm glad that the rest of the guys are going to continue forward and keep making music. So you know, hail to Baron, hail to Cromlech, and uh, we'll see uh, what their kind of new moniker is when they announce it. Hail, 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 Borders. Um, Okay, so apart from that usual top of the hour housekeeping, follow us on social media, me the death metal guy at Terminus Podcast on Facebook, and the black metal guy at Terminus Extreme Metal on Instagram. And if you are particularly invested in the uh, the, the the project that we lay out here. Uh, feel free to subscribe to us on Patreon, where $3 and up gets you access to the Terminus Prime bonus episodes, and $5 and up gets you access to the Terminus Black Circle, where people have been uh, people have been posting a lot of uh, interesting underground black metal records, and I've been periodically stepping in to complain about how complicated and boring nutrition is. So, yeah. with that, a show. Hail! This is Brandon from Cromley, and you're listening to Terminus. And we are back with Gromoverge Isdrevla on um, Der Schwarze Todd and Ver- Werewolf Promotion. I almost said Werewolf. Um, <laughs> uh, but, um, uh, Yes, Werewolf Promotion, which is, uh, of course, different from Werewolf Records, as one YouTube commenter recently found there's, out. There's like five different almost identically named Werewolf labels. There's yes. like a, there, like two of them are, I think like two of them are gone, but the third one is also kind of out there, and it makes it very difficult to track. Yes, <laughs> Werewolf Promotion is uh, Slavic black metal, and that is certainly what this is. So, um, this is a solo project uh, that's been a long time in the making from String Scald, uh, who you may have heard of from Valknut, who we did a bonus episode on a while ago, and uh, Nitberg. Um, Valknut was sort of peripherally BBH connected. Nitberg was an uh, official BBH project. Uh, came along their real their best record Nagel Raid came out at the end of the sort of at the end of the line for them at around 2010 mm-hmm. and you know uh, he played with Galdred. Uh he was also and I didn't know this until recently or I didn't like really pay attention to it he was one of the main dudes from Temnozor mm-hmm. um, and most of this material was written during that era in the 90s uh in 
2015, he set out to, quote, forge a strong alloy from all the accumulated unrealized material. Isn't it cool how Eastern Europeans can write better in our language than we can? <laughs> they're they're more know, willing to um, go into poetry than we are. Absolutely, yes. Um, so, the, um, so, this is a pretty cool surprise return record, um, and it is basically stuff that, it, it's fascinating because it's the compositional skill is very high, and the recording quality is very high. You get the sense this is stuff he could write in the 90s, but like literally couldn't record. Mm -hmm. and, and maybe couldn't piece together a, in a whole. Yeah. Right? He could write, you know, the riffs and various sequences and had a vision, but it wasn't... He had to mature as a musician and maybe acquire some more resources and collaborators to make this happen. Um, and get outside the Temnozor framework. Um, so, this bears a lot of comparison to two records that we have talked at length about and uh, sung the praises of. One would be the first, which I'll mention now, is Sternatus, right? Which is the, you know, the, of course the Sternatus guy has a more peripheral connection to BBH, which has has been disputed by some BBH members, <laughs> namely the only, namely the only surviving central BBH member. Uh, but you know, we we have we're, we're not you know we're not here to speculate on drama. Um, so the Sternatus record, right, was a lot of the material was clearly written. Some of its re-recordings of tracks he wrote back in those days, um, and uh, a lot of it was clearly written back then. But the skill with which it was put together both compositionally and uh, instrumentally and the recording was just way higher um, and it was a very convincing uh, outing. This is similar uh, in that it is uh, especially for something that's made in a sense from um, you know not leftovers exactly but stuff that's been put aside for years it's very coherent um, and and very ambitious. This record is massive. It is 70 minutes long. And just in terms of that scale, but also a number of specific influences and songwriting tendencies, it bears comparison to Cromlech's Ascent of Kings, mm -hmm. uh, which we both thought was a magnificent record, but nevertheless furiously debated because the death metal guy liked it better than I did. <laughs> I, you know, uh, I thought there were some problems with it. Um, uh, so what is this musically? Well, I guess at its base, you could say it's, you know, I've been like, we've talked about what a bad year it's been so far for black metal, right? It started to pick up. We did that one show with four really big releases. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, uh, with like, you know, the Passaism and the Kaivum and all that. Yeah. But, um. But it, it, it's been pretty bad, not just this year, but late last year, too, and stuff. And um, and one thing that both, there hasn't been a lot of that's good, and that we sort of maybe got, got bored of for a while, would be sort of, uh, you know, a lot of sort of nature-y pagan black metal, right? yeah. which I tended to bring on the show a lot at the beginning. Um, and this summer, I have not had a new record in that vein. And to me, it's like, oh man, finally, it's this. It, this is the record. So this is, 
It, this is sort of lush and sprawling, uh, very immersive, uh, and in a sense, summery. You know, Russian summer, but still summer. Mm -hmm. So, uh, um, it is, uh, and it's carefully sort of tempered. There is a, there's some very aggressive heavy riffing on it the guitar tone when it's allowed to ring or played in certain ways is very heavy but the overall effect is still sort of uh gauzy and continuous and you can slip you can sort of slip into it like a dream it can it can um, sort of play like an atmo black record ex yes which is which is pretty cool he's sort of like it, it, in some sense, some of the sharp edges are the harsh. The harsh bits are rounded off from the earlier BBH stuff that inspired Atmo Black. Mm -hmm. But it's very much. It's not an Atmo Black record, but you can listen to it like that. Oh yeah, right? it's, it's landscape music. Yeah, you can hear him responding in some way to Druk more than you know. A lot of the BBH stuff had a sort of antagonistic relationship to the Ukrainians, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you can hear he he's always been a little less sort of. Uh, competitive about it. Nidberg clearly sounds like Hate Forest in important ways. Here, there's a lot of Druk, but, you know, whereas if you listen to Autumn Aurora, you'll have these lovely, tranquil atmospheres, and then you'll have, you know, Sanko going like, yeah. um, <laughs> Here, it's more, um, here there's less, uh, it's more sort of all blended. Um, the other... The other important word here would be something Alan Averill used in my interview with him. What he, he talked about the old, what we might call pagan black metal or whatever, or heathen metal or whatever. He just called it pagan metal, which includes many things that we would in retrospect call folk metal or mm -hmm. Viking metal. And I feel like that's a useful term, especially as I've talked more about trying to get outside of the black metal paradigm. Yeah. So this is listed, you know, in the press release, this is pagan metal. That's what they called it back then. That's what Temnozor was. Uh, this is definitely, this will not fulfill sort of true black metal quotas, right, of any kind, even relative to, you know, pagan stuff like the BBH. Yeah. Uh, um... And there is also, I think you'd agree with me, a huge role here for the toughest and most medieval 80s heavy metal. Yeah, it's probably one of the most distinctive features of this band that kind of sets it apart from its strain of, like, Slavic pagan metal. Yes, although I remember back in the day you pointed out that early Graveland sounded evoked 80s heavy metal, and I was like, ah, oh, nah, it's coming from this and this and this. You know, over the years I've softened on that, and I think this record sort of proves that connection, and that a lot of the more sort of epic ideas in, um, and epic and ancient sounding riffing ideas that you get in the pagan side of black metal, and even in just some of the Norwegian stuff, really are a reinjection of certain kinds of primitive heavy metal into 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 the extreme metal framework, like. Uh, Cromlech, or rather, you identified a connection between the Cromlech record and the Manila, Manila Road, right? Yeah, yeah. Some of those riffs are just, especially on, you know, what was it, Deluge and the one before it, Open the Gates. Mm -hmm. Those are, um, I might be slightly getting those titles wrong, but uh, those those are very pagan riffs. Um, yeah. You can hear that here. You can hear, uh, what's the other one I was talking about? Can uh, some Candle Mass here. Um, yeah. 
And this shows, okay, maybe that stuff was always pretty fundamental to the more pagan metal scene. Yeah, no, it's it's incorporated very well here for the most part, and it it seizes on things that are originary for this style that have been kind of left in the dust. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's definitely harder to hear that influence on like a uh, a ten minute forest track. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Um. So yeah, what what did, there's some more stuff we could get into. I mean, the other stuff to highlight would be structurally highly symphonic in a very authentic way uh it's very ambitious obviously at 70 minutes it it kind of has it might have that kind of four-part album right uh double lp four four side thing you pointed out about cromlech mm -hmm. um uh i think overall the symphonic ambitions are fulfilled really well which we can get into but wh what did you make of this uh this is an album you could make. You could make a 70-minute um, symphonic folk Slav black record. Uh, <laughs> you that's that's a choice that you could make, and I I'm not even like completely against it. Uh, but the 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 problem is. Uh, this project really pulls on a specific style of uh, sort of Slavic pagan black metal that I'm not really into. Um, mm -hmm. th th so this is really an an excellent articulation of a style that I like slam the X button on the tab in my browser when it pops up on YouTube. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So okay, so here's the thing. I've I've never really enjoyed Temenozer. Um I've I've uh, I've given Folkstorm of Azure Knights or whatever it's called a try several times, and it's just it's not my thing, dude. Um This is certainly a more sort of minimal stately take on that sort of idea, but the fundamental conceit of this sort of folky uh symphonic Slav black that ties very closely to the nocturnal mortem is uh, challenging for me up front. Now, that being said, I would say that a lot or even most of the material on this record is very good, and I actually like it in the moments where it is at its most minimal and its most in proximity to Blazeberth Hall. It still doesn't really sound like any of those bands, and it's not really trying to, but I like the stuff that sort of moves in that direction a little bit more. Those big sheets of just, like, looping chords over program double-kick passages, yeah. you know. Th those parts are great. No, it, it does in, maybe not sound like BBH, but it does in part sound like the harshest Slav stuff, whether it's Graveland, BBH, Ukrainian stuff. Or it sounds it, like that, uh, that German band we covered the other day, like Heresy. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it sounds like the kind of thing they would do. Just these, like, textured and beautiful but not friendly landscapes. Uh, it's really cool. Mm -hmm. um, the, but there's some stuff on this material that is just an, a basically impossible sell for me. The folk influence is extremely authentic, but you start... I, I just don't know the viability of these summary dance around the maypole melodies in like a harsh extreme metal context. I I, I see them as completely valid. I, it's just hard for me to wrap my head around when those pop up. And there's a lot of those. 
And a lot of them are done on a flute, and that's extremely hard for me as a man whose shirt collection only features murdered women. (laughs) And actually, um, 69% of them were playing flutes. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's uh it's 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 difficult for me to wrap my head around so i i guess what i would say is like the stuff that's the most black metal i really enjoy and my enjoyment of this record is on a sliding gradient from like really enjoy that to really dislike the stuff that sounds like legend of zelda music um Ooh. and the problem is like i really like the good material but 70 minutes is brutal on me. It is just such a fucking exhausting bear of a record. Uh, and there's not a ton of variation Dude, in a lot of that. See, about two-thirds of the way through, I or like at a certain point, I was like, oh man, this is this is, all right, stuff's really building. This is must be getting towards the end of the record. It was about, you know, 40, 40 minutes in, 50 minutes in. And I look and I realize, oh my gosh, we're only in maybe part four of Volgast's Sword in six parts, yeah. which is only the third to last track. Um, and I was overjoyed I <laughs> to keep going. I'm sure they were. It's just there's there's certain things when you're. We've talked about this on the show a little bit before. Uh, my idea that as you start increasing track length time and album length time the difficulty of succeeding in that doesn't increase linearly. It it increases, like, logarithmically. So by the time you get yeah, to a 70-minute yeah, yeah, yeah. record, it's almost fucking impossible for it to not have bum moments on it. So I, I guess I think there's a version of this album that maybe cuts off 20 or 25 minutes and just, like, immediately is much more bearable for me. But, ooh, yeah, this is a tough sell, man. 70 minutes of, of of very homogenous sort of pagan metal with a lot of kind of silly Slavic flute melodies. That's a tough one for me, dude. <laughs> yeah, so the flute is, I mean, so I've never, I've never, like, you know, the nocturnal mortem school of, you know, sim, like symphonic folk black or whatever, it was never my thing either, right? We've talked about this. Mm-hmm. I just don't get it. Every time I try to listen to goat horns, I don't get it. Um... Did I even check out Temnazor back in the day? I'm not sure, honestly. I might have just lumped it in with the rest of that stuff. And so I've definitely gotten into this guy's work from, like, from Nidberg mm-hmm. and from Volknut. Um, yeah, you you really took the back door there. <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but the... Uh, so if if anything for me this this record would be like oh maybe now I'll go back and check out the Temnosaur stuff but like you know the same things you dislike about that whole style I I dislike about it one would be the um uh chirpy synthesized back in the day especially with synthesized chirpy mm-hmm. synthesized flute parts that uh often just sounded like video game music, right? And usually not in the cool way. (laughs) Right. Here the melodies, as you say, are very authentic. And I looked, it's actually performed by a real flutist. Mm -hmm. Although I would say it's, that's not always clear. It might be that there are certain recording choices made to homogenize the flute sound. I think that it might be Uh, like when it's a repeating motif, they just, they they take one play of it and they loop it. Yeah. Yeah. So like I, I, the flute is, 
As you say, it's hard to do a 70-minute record without some missteps, and it's just a matter of whether the listener is, you know, down with the sickness or not, right? <laughs> um, and, and for me, this one was a bit of a grower. I think the weakest track is probably the first one, the first full one, which is Overthrowing the Unoriginal, which is a cool title. But um, that just has, like, a solid Slavonic black metal riff, and it is just doubled by the flute. Yeah, and that was the, that was that's rough. The, yeah, <laughs> that's the worst possible way to arrange a flute or any other kind of additional instrument, but especially something that's thin in texture, like a flute. Mm-hmm. It's the worst way to arrange it. Um, and uh, it doesn't. It's sort of redundant because it's just playing the octave, uh, and it's not adding much density. Mm. Um, and that's a method of composing folk parts that held back a lot of the old pagan metal and folk metal, right? Uh, so that I had some, I was raising an eyebrow there. The quality of the, the, the overall vibe I enjoyed. And I was like, okay, let's see where this goes. But that track was sort of has some of the characteristic weaknesses of the style. And yeah. um, well, this is a record that definitely gets better as it goes on. Yes, and the flute there was kind of shrill, like the high playing those bright melodies high up on the flute runs the risk of it becoming a little tinny. And it's pretty um, forward in the production too. Yes, it runs the basic, and and so that's another reason why, even though it's live flute, at times it sounds like synth flute. Mm-hmm. Um, however, uh, it does, you know, um, <coughs> you know, I'm certainly not anti-flute. Um, uh, the, uh, Waylanders Born to the Fight is one of the heaviest black metal songs ever recorded. Fight me. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the, um, and you know, I've, I've mainlined Crota, right? Yeah. Um, uh, and the, uh. The, the remainder, it, it gets better over the course of the record. Even just on the second track, uh, In the Palms of Dawn has very different flute playing that's a lot lower in register and more inflected. Um, and it also has great cleans that are sort of like Slavic version of Olver. Mm-hmm. Uh, that track is, you could almost say it's, the, it's on, still on the slighter side because it's not... Um, it's sort of a self-contained song on a record that's like more grandiose. It's just kind of lovely. Um, mm. it, it might be, in a sense, it's like so good that I didn't bother sampling it. It's just like, yeah, there's a really lovely kind of soft folk black song that builds in kind of cool ways. Okay, yeah. Well, I think that the album really kicks off and starts showing its better side, starting with the song on your first sample. Let's go. Um, so after you get through that sort of, um, uh, almost lullaby track, um, we're going to get a reminder that this is in fact a, um, this is in fact sword music. So this is the land of silent stones starting at, uh, the beginning of the track.
Okay, so that is a almost three-minute section based on variations on a single gradually unfolding folk melody. Uh, and that is a master class in how to write this kind of riff. And, you know, this is a kind of um, a melody that I'm particularly dedicated to, right? And I've s tried to write stuff like this on guitar, right? Um, I try to, when I'm walking around without my headphones in, I like to just whistle and try to come up with stuff like <laughs> this. Uh, and this is, and, and it's, uh, w what you can hear is really cool techniques for getting outside, for thinking with the basic ingredients of metal riff writing mm -hmm. and moving completely outside the paradigm of the looping cellular riff. So the riff has four phrases within it. Right? Um each of those and each of them is sort of the same until the third one, which is the turn or the end of the turnaround. Uh but um each of them has a different turn in the second part of the riff. Uh in or you know, yeah, the the phrase, whatever you want to call it. We could call them riffs. And um the melody's made of four riffs. Uh and the second time he repeats the whole melody, every one of those turns is different uh -huh. except maybe on the on the four on the fourth part on the last on the turnaround uh -huh. that is um uh so that means you're playing basically the same riff eight times or six and a, six times or whatever and it's different each time you hear it uh and yet it is always the same riff. It's a really good example of sort of the flowing organic form that you get in uh, pagan visual art and, you know, like the sort of horror vacui uh, metalwork and tapestry and that you get in uh, pagan melody. Yeah, I mean, it's not it's it, it it's definitely intricate and it's not badly executed, but I, I got to get back to the fact that it's like. It's like a three-minute intro. Oh, I didn't think that was the intro. Oh, oh, you, oh, I think of it as like the intro before sort of the verses start with the vocals. And it's just like, it is a long time to spend iterating a very, like, simple idea. Oh, I, I thought of that as sort of like the main course. That was just like, enjoy, like, I, I was like, as soon as that hit, I was like, this is sick. <laughs> I, I think I uh, the, the main... Uh, the other attention drawer there is the way he trades it off with the flute. Mm -hmm. um, the uh, they're playing the same melody, and I think without even a chord change. It's not. I don't think it's even up a fourth or a fifth. it might be, but I think it's just an octave, right? Yeah. Do 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 do. Um, and the mood completely changes, even though it's in the same key when you pass it to the flute. Uh, it's a good example of the sort of um, phrase trading that happens in classical music mm -hmm. um, executed here and it's done really skillfully uh, at first each one is each one is sort of uh, starts the phrase and the other one finishes it mm -hmm. and then over time each is allowed to play the phrase in full 
before we finally get back into the uh, the vocals drop in. But um, I think these instrumental parts are like essential to the record, and I don't even notice that there's not vocals. See, that's interesting because I think. I'll get into it on my next sample, but I or my first sample rather. Um, I think that actually the vocals are really important to this record, and I think that they're sort of a problem in terms of. I think a lot of these songs are written around like long sets of lyrics and long vocal passages, and a lot of the the time frame that a lot of this music operates on ends up sort of warping around that, so. It becomes, you know, a process of, well, shit, this portion of the song, I've got so many lyrics, so this riff needs to repeat X more times than I originally anticipated. Um, but then it's like, you don't want to just give everything else short shrift, so everything else sort of expands along with it. I, I think that in general, th- this is a record with very long songs, generally. I mean, the average track length is about uh, 9 to 10 minutes. And then, of course, there's Volga Sword, which is the 27-minute epic that the album is sort of built around. Yeah, um, I called I called the Cromlech 18-minuter excessive. I will I, I will give you that. Uh, I, I, I guess I should be calling this one excessive. I think we'll have to see. I know you're going to sample from it. Yeah, I'm going to sample. Well, we're both going to sample from it because that's, you know, that's the primary course of the record. Well, let me go to a place where I think the band really fires on all cylinders. It's Real quick, can I just... I, the the thing you're saying, I, I think I get it. It's a thing we've talked about on the show before. I was just wanted to see if, you know, rephrase it in my words to see if we're on the same page and mm-hmm. maybe for the for the listener. Like, yeah. uh the idea is basically, it's something we've talked about on other records. The idea is there need, the vocals, you have to have these long passages of vocal delivery kind of in the tradition of like verses on old thrash and death and black metal records, mm-hmm. right? Uh, or even just like in the sense of folk music, being yeah. a lot of times just being a single melody with verse after verse. I'm sure that's what he's thinking of. Yes, it's mm-hmm. a ballad, right? But in, in terms of in our art form, what it happens is, okay, you play the verse riff with the with the vocal. Mm-hmm. Um and you he so he gets locked into these long sections of vocals and because of and that means he's repeating riffs under them more than he might need to and then the other parts to maintain proportion yes accordingly no exactly that's what i'm suggesting uh, okay <clears throat> yeah uh, you just you phrased it much more clearly than I did. No, no, you phrased it very clearly too. It was just a complicated. It was a complicated idea, so I wanted to get. Yeah, it yeah. Like as a songwriter, the songs can warp in weird ways based on stuff like that. Mm-hmm. You know, just like for practical reasons, shit happens. So it's like I, I get yeah. the impulse. I just think that it's like not constructive to a lot of these songs. So I'm going to go to a track where the band's like firing on all cylinders to me, which is the next one to the glory of Odin. To the Glory of Odin is one of the shortest tracks on the record. It's only like four and a half minutes long, and it's an instrumental, or like primarily an instrumental. There might be like a little bit of backing vocals. Um, But this song is so good. It's like easily, to me, it's like the tightest and just like best performing song on the record to me. And I was wondering, why is that? And it's like, I think it's because there aren't vocals. I think it's because without the vocals, the riffs can like move in and out in a more agile way. There don't need to be like huge, like, you know, 
you know, 16 bar blocks allocated to a single idea. So everything just moves at a faster, but still really naturalistic clip. So let's listen to the first couple minutes of this, which I think is just a great example of like this band at its best and the best of its like constituent 70s and 80s heavy metal influences. That sample and that song as a whole like moves at a pace that I like so much more. Um, and I and the fact that the there aren't vocals to worry about means that it becomes purely musically narrative. Now I think the rest of the tracks on this record have like narrative progression in their songwriting, but none is like distinct and theatrical as this one. You know, you've got that awesome opening riff. Uh, which you said is basically a variation of like Druid's uh, Sunwheel riff, mm-hmm. but played in a sort of early 80s heavy metal idiom, which is really cool. Flute comes in and changes the whole vibe. Like you were saying on your first sample, you know, that when the flute comes in, the mood changes, even though it's primarily just harmonizing with the riff. You know, it adds mm-hmm. this Jethro Tull inflection to the whole thing. It mm-hmm. makes it very long hair, especially... Uh, when you get to the second riff, that sort of darker minor key contrast riff, which is sort of like a, th- a slowed down thrash breakdown yeah, riff yeah. or something like that. <laughs> Just sort oh, of like yeah. a tense arpeggio. Yeah. Manila Road would play that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah the, the progier end of heavy metal would play that. Uh, <laughs> followed by the, the sort of like flat kind of more Gravelandy riff with the bass line <laughs> of the previous arpeggiated riff continuing. Uh, 
stop into just like a, a nice big landscapey Slavlak section with another cool flute melody, and then back into the original. So we get four very distinct parts with their own personalities before we get back into you know the the main musical section of the song, and it takes two minutes. And I don't feel like uh, like any of it's rushed or anything. I think this is like appropriate pacing for this music. And I think that when the burden of the vocals aren't there, he feels freer to just explore with arrangement itself. I think there's a tendency to, when the vocals are going on on this record, it sort of flattens everything out. They become just big blocks of a riff. And... I think that naturally inhibits what seems like a, a guy with a lot of really cool, fast-paced, creative ideas when he's just concentrating on guitar and bass and, you know, flute interaction. Well, I think that can go together with what I was... I, I get what you're saying, that the pacing here is very different and much more to your taste from the uh, Land of Silent Stones pacing. Mm-hmm. But like that's kind of what I was trying to point to. I know you were gonna talk. I knew you were gonna talk about this one being the instrumental and that being good. And I, I kind of feel like I hear the same strength in the instrumental there that you hear here. I guess I'm less disposed to hear that as an intro because on that track, just because I'm like, okay, this is just a big, doomy Slav Black riff mm. that like is itself a main course. And I guess maybe the flute in some places is doing some of the work you might expect from a vocal. Mm. But like, I mean, I think we're, clearly we're hearing the same thing, but from different perspectives, right? There's a mm. lot of focus on the instrument. There's a lot of focus on the instrumental aspect of the music. Uh, if you're, uh, you tend to be more invested in narrative as a songwriting paradigm. And yeah. I tend to be more invested in process or ac- immersion. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, if, for me, the big, long, repeating cycles of things, especially because I often have interesting variation in them, uh, are maybe more inherently interesting. But I agree that this song is uh, really cool. Um, and you know it's also the kind of short song where that's really punchy that you could if you wanted to he could keep it equally punchy and make it twice as long right you know he would just add other stuff mm-hmm. yeah i guess that's kind i don't of... think he i don't think he needs to i think it just proves it's it's the instrumental stuff is really well done there yeah no i i think for me the issue is i i don't necessarily have anything against you know huge stretches of looping riffs and stuff but this is not a the kind of riffs that you loop with in this style are not you know extremely riff forward you know what i mean like if he was doing that with variations on more of these like you know chunkier right hand heavy heavy metal riffs um, that would be cool, but a lot of these kind of like looping four or five chord Slav Black like trem riffs are, I, I guess, basically cool on the surface, but like they have to be really, really, really A plus for me to like listen to 16 bars of them, you know, um, and here I just don't think a lot of them have that inherent interest. 
Okay, I guess we haven't got a sample of one of those yet. Maybe one will crop up on one of our next two samples. Um, but but it's true. I, I hear what you mean, certainly, that things like the overthrowing the unoriginal riff, like that is just sort of a bare-bones Slavic rhythm guitar riff. And mm. they certainly crop up here in various places. Yeah. And they have they have purpose because it's usually in conjunction with more elaborate synth stuff, you know, in the Nocturnal oh. Mortem tradition. Right, right, or the flutes or whatever. And, and I, yeah, as you say, like, they're usually supporting the vocals, but, you know, we've also listened to tons of records by the Slavs, including this guy specifically, where there are engaging vocals over very active riffs. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Um, so I'll get to my other sample where, again, this is sort of me talking about pacing, but from the negative side. Okay, so we're going to Volgast Sword. We're going... Um, Fucking how far into this track? Are we, I, I guess like a third in. We're probably getting to the beginning of the third part. Because mm-hmm. um, it's full gas sword in six parts. Um, so here we're going to hear... Like, it's a very long sword. So we're sort of... The, if we're coming out of part two and going into part three, you're going to hear this kind of deceleration in part two, a sort of mournful melody into a little clean passage that I don't mind. But then he's got to figure out how do we start the song back up again. And I just, I'm not a huge fan of the choice here. That is just the sound of the song hitting a fucking wall to me. Uh, the moment that chug riff comes in, my heart just sinks because I know what's about to happen. I, I, I just know it's going to be like minutes of that. 
<laughs> with the flute coming in and leaving and then coming in again and then leaving again <laughs> over this this trudging chug riff with some like pad synth stuff and it's just it it just it doesn't do anything it, it's just it feels like it's playing for time now i understand that in a song this long there's like sort of necessary evils that have to happen of like high contrast stuff to break up just giant blocks of sort of pagan metal. Yeah, you kind of have to do certain things by fiat. Like, okay, now this part is starting. It's like, okay, there's a fucking clean guitar part. This is just letting you know we're moving to the next part. That's okay. I get it. Um, I even I even like that little clean guitar piece. But... At a certain point, if you find yourself doing like a breakdown synth figure with what is a a challenging flute melody over the top, <laughs> the flute melody is sick. It's black metal guy. I regret to inform you, it is not sick. <laughs> it is. It's not. <laughs> it, it, that is a that is a sick flute melody. It's agile and sprightly. And, uh, and, 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 and a sort of, uh, it's, it's, it's the, the merry dance of the wood spirits. In, in any difficult relationship, sometimes you have to say, well, we're just going to have to agree to disagree. And I think this is one of those situations, but <laughs> I, I'm sure at least half of the listeners will agree with you. Yeah. yeah it probably will be like a perfectly even split actually. Yeah, yeah. But, but what I'm saying is like, I understand that these like contrast parts are necessary. But some of those contrast parts are bad, and they have to. Then they go on a really long time because, again, we're trying to like make everything sort of even in the amount of time that it's dedicated to it. So I understand the impulses, but the simple answer is to not make a thirty-minute song. Like you just, you don't have to do it. You don't have to put yourself in the position where stuff like this becomes necessary. You know what I mean? <laughs> okay. Yeah. So I, I, you know, a lot of. I mean, all the things you're saying about this record are fair. Um, the Where I can try to meet you here, let's see, several things. The chug melody is very uninspired. Uh, uh-huh. I have more time for it because I like amoebics. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but, like, that's not a good amoeb... That's, like, a... That's not a good amoebics chug riff, or it's, like, a new metal riff, mm-hmm. right? Um, it sounds like some of the riffs off of Sonic Mass, which sounded too new metal. Um, it, it's, uh, yeah, that's a pretty bad chug, and that does evoke all the things we disliked about sort of glitzy folk metal from the early 2000s, right? Um, and it does just sort of, the previous melodic idea does kind of, on the the clean guitar, which I think is lovely, does just kind of evaporate at that Mm -hmm. point. Um... I am with you there. Uh, I think I was. I think that I just inherently like chug. So I was just like, oh, good, chug a chug now. Um, but the um, uh, I like the synth patches there a lot. The swelling synth patches, and obviously I like the flute. But I think the other place I can meet you is that when he does it a second time, it's unnecessary. Right? Yeah, he drops the flute in. He does the swelling synth patches again. I'm okay with that. Those are cool, and those sort of point towards sprawling riff ideas. Mm-hmm. But then when we have to go back to the flute, yeah, right, that's the and you know, and there might other maybe if I listened to 
a 30-minute song is kind of hard, as when it's placed in the middle of another record, especially, is kind of hard. I wish I could see what the six parts to Volgast's sword were, but it's not in the track listing. I always kind of wish with things like this, it's like, okay, if there are six parts, please just allow me to skip to them. Yeah, um, please please break them up. Uh, not not even like you don't even have to put like a break in it on the record or anything, just like mark it. Yeah. Let your listeners know where they are and skip to them on the digital thing. Um mm-hmm. it's uh it, because yeah, there there's um it's unwieldy and it's hard. Certain themes on this record, def on this track, definitely do get repurposed. Those swelling synth progressions become a different but related progression later in the song. Uh-huh. Uh, there was actually a ton of thematic interweaving between these different parts, the different parts of the sword or whatever. Mm-hmm. However, nothing that there there should be some immediate payoff for that clean guitar stuff, and there it sort of evaporates. Well, I mean, I I I think that in general, there there are certain points on like extreme metal compositions where it's like it's just too long it's just sort of too unwieldy just because like as a listener it becomes so difficult to track the intricacies so even if there are these extremely detailed interwoven melodic ideas on on a time scale that long you're just you're not going to remember them half the time okay so here's here's another point of difference which might be I, th- I, th- I don't think it's like a counter-argument, but it's another different way of hearing it. Mm-hmm. When I heard this song, right, and it was right around this part during the beautiful clean guitar thing, which goes on for much longer than this sample included, and it sounds kind of like The Cure. Mm-hmm. Uh, during that part, I was like, God, this is beautiful. I love this record. I, I hope we're not nearing the end. Oh, good, there's 20 more minutes. <laughs> um, uh, but, like, we're 30 more minutes. <laughs> but, um, uh, but when that happened, right, it's... That moments like that happen in part because you lose your place in the song. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I when I was listening to this, I wasn't paying attention to the track listings at all. Right? Maybe I vaguely knew that we were on a track called Volgas Sword, but I, you know, you just assume, okay, this part's ending, this part's beginning, whatever. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I almost wasn't thinking of it as a thirty-minute. Tr- uh, I wasn't thinking of it as a thing that needed to cohere. I was thinking of it as a sequence of musical events more or less on a level with the musical events on the rest of the record. Does that make sense? It's because maybe it's because I was bought in, right? You're yeah, and, you're you're kind of bought into the whole conceit. For, for me it's a matter of and, like and because and because I'm listening to it sort of atmospherically, right? Mhm. Which is because I think it uh, it facilitates the record is composed in ways that smooth over some of these harsh discontinuities, some of these well, or you could say just errors, mm-hmm. mistakes, right? It smooths over that because of how it's produced, because of the kind of melodies, because of the sweeping, um, uh, the sweeping atmospheric thing that's going on here. You could argue that that's a strength and that makes it work even when it falls down. On the other hand, um, I suppose the counter argument is that uh, it allows a kind of slop. Mm-hmm. It, it, a difference would be so we could contrast that with the Cromlock 18 minute song, which I said was basically criticized for similar reasons, right? There's shit mm-hmm. in here that doesn't make any sense. Um, 
it's uh it is so long that even though there are cool parts it becomes almost imperceivable on a musical level right what like we like you were saying yeah um uh and with the Cromlech tracks those were composed not as this sort of um episodic not as the sequence of immersive parts that sort of uh move in a mood way over a very long time frame but as they really tried to compose an 18 minute song as a single integral structure right Mm -hmm. that had these sort of defined extremely like labyrinthine uh you know to me over complicated form yeah that was clearly discernible with really hard edges that's a much higher risk songwriting strategy Mm-hmm. I don't think it worked in that case, but I you can respect it for being so high risk. Whereas this, because it's a lot like less complex, more drawn out, more sort of gauzy and hazy, it's a lower risk compositional strategy, and there's the same problems showing up in it. Yeah, yeah, I, I can get that. I, I think this is just we perceive basically the same issue in these respective records, but just our priors musically color which version we prefer. Yeah, 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 yeah. This, they can both be accused of sort of top heavy, uh, uh, being top heavy and being um, a little bit uh, so invested in their compositional conceits that they get high on their own supply. Yeah. Yeah, that's that. That's fair. So, um, so yeah. So I, uh, you know, fair points, death metal guy. Um, but the good news is that Volgast does eventually draw his sword, which is a discernible moment you can hear on the record, and is sick. Uh, and um, after that, you know, he starts like you know, f- you know, just ch- chopping off heads and stuff. So uh, let's let's listen to this part. Um, uh, and uh, da, 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 da. yeah, let's let's. All right, it's sword time.
well, that's lovely, right? Oh, yeah. No, that's really good. That I mean, that's definitely a, a highlight moment of that song. Yeah. he That last place that we go sort of recalls the clean guitar moment at the beginning of your sample. Although not, you know, they're disconnected from yeah. each other by like a full 10 minutes, right? Which is a compositional issue. But uh, it, those of us who have listened to this song multiple times trying to figure it out for the review, uh, I, 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 I think I can hear that. But um, it's uh, at least connected in mood. But that part is just the most just gorgeous. Um, and it is... Uh, the maneuvering to get there is awesome. So we start out on a part that is, as you said while we were listening to it, just Elven King, which is a really fruity Euro power metal. Oh uh, yeah, they're like a, a folky yeah. Euro power metal band. Yeah. Um, the first album, though, Heathen Real, it's like it's very it's like very pagan. And oh wait, I remember this band. Yeah, yeah, it's fucking awesome, dude. That's a great record. Yeah, they um, uh, so. This is basically, it's ripping power metal. It's what you can hear. You can always hear that in the base of the 90s and early 2000s folk metal stuff. Yeah. Either the, you know, Nocturnal Mortem or, or Temnozor. Or Skyclad, um, stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, people have criticized it for that, but it's also a strength. Um, and, you know, it's what the kids think pagan metal sounds like these days, right? <laughs> every, every fucking new... Um, you know, every new sort of project on the internet these days uh, is sort of sounds like that without quite intending to, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and here, uh, Grandma Verge is doing it very much on purpose, and it sounds really hard. The other thing it reminds me of is Forefather. Oh, yeah, yeah. You could definitely Come get... completely out of that tradition. Oh, yeah, very Forefather. I, did, I didn't even think of that, but, yeah, like, they're, the, the sheer aggression with yeah. which they play those goofy-ass Anglo-Saxon melodies <laughs> yeah, is yeah, awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. M- mo- motorhead beat and extremely hateful fruit, flute. Yeah. Yes, it's, uh, <laughs> um, I almost said hateful fruit, but, um, the, uh, <laughs> uh, the, um... It's so so you get that, and then it drops into uh, basically riffs that could have been off Noggle Raid. You get mm-hmm. you get sections of uh, complex kind of grinding, sliding disharmonic chords in the tradition of Nitberg. Uh, really aggressive, still kind of um, noble sounding, but in a much more uh, vicious way. Uh, and then it spills us out again into this uh, more foresty, uh, whimsical landscape. Uh, it's it's really cool, and that sets up the end of the track, which actually has one of the most beautiful parts on the record. It's flute heavy, uh, and it's a fi- looping five four folk melody that's just like it is. Um, it's the sort of thing other guitarists, at least me dream of writing.
by the open sea The waves have done flaws are now singing with me And soundless the sky frays over the land While a million stars watch a grown man Terry is the mantle by the open sea The waves as and flows are now singing with me And sound as the sky breaks over the land While a million stars watch over all men While a million stars watch over all men relatively new French label, Rempart Productions. So, uh, this is somewhat related to the Gromovers we just reviewed, in that it comes out of the general orbit of folk metal. Uh, Mulderion came to our attention through the Old Mill label, and Old Mill uh, made itself known through a expansive and unusual definition of folk metal, and made an argument for why this term should not be a slur. Uh, 
And Mulder Yawn was one of their flagship bands. Uh, Old Mill's kind of dormant now. Mulder Yawn has continued. Uh, and Mulder Yawn came out of the gates with a full-formed, unique concept and really unique atmosphere. But ha- I think w- we've tracked them on the show, uh, and or tracked him. It's a one-man project. Uh, he's had some trouble transferring that vision to record uh, because it's so idiosyncratic. Uh, so the most successful of the old albums, maybe, is the first one, From Whence the Woods, which is this strange combination of haunting dungeon synth and really just uh, pa- impassioned DSBM-type riffing, mid-tempo, ramalama. Um, uh, and, and everything was kind of bit-crushed, which blended the two sonically. Uh, so, you, you know, very, very blocky uh, digital synth tones with uh, hyper-distorted guitar and vocals to the point that were crumbling. Mm-hmm. Uh, so combine those two and you get a total parallel universe take on the emotional spectrum of, say, a Burzum record. Yeah. Right? Uh, sort of like Burzum, it's Burzum gone full circle, right? Through, oh, Burzum turns into Dungeon Synth and DSBM and then someone remakes Burzum on the other side and it sounds totally different. Mm-hmm. Um, but more intimate, more whimsical, more emotionally vulnerable, right? It sounded sort of more teenage than Varg's teenage stuff, but mm-hmm. in a good way. Um, and uh, it, it was sort of uh, maybe the first time I'd heard anything with, to do with modern dungeon synth that I'd liked. Uh, and the other thing that was important was that it had this very uh, leafed out concept about Trees and the living forest. Ah, I got that. Hugh Warren's, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) and Hugh Warren's, you know, mushrooms, uh, druids wandering the forest, and the forest as being a place that's not just nice and a place you go to recharge with your iPod earbuds in, (laughs) but um, as a place that is threatening, spooky. And uh, contains forces of decay and, uh, you know, um, all that. So, uh, decomposition is the word I was looking for. Um, So the question is, where do you go from there? Because that's pretty weird, right? Um, And we reviewed the last full length and What Lie Neath Its Shade around the same time we are in 2020. Uh, I moved much more towards a black metal sound with some great kind of Roman Sanko riffs, very aggressive some cool synth work, but it was still kind of cut up. It was at this point, it was kind of cut up with the dungeon synth stuff, alternating, you know, atmosphere and aggression. And as the death metal guy pointed out, this put the project at kind of more of an impasse, right? What's the point of this dungeon synthy stuff? Um, can you do another out? Al- this album's very cool, but can you do another one like this? Mm-hmm. Um, and it retained the weird digital production, but uh, which was maybe becoming a, a drawback. The he, we reviewed also a split when the last with Robes of Snow called When the Last Forest Has Died, and there he sort of stripped away the dungeon synth more, brought more black metal to the fore. Uh, death metal guy liked it. We we liked it. It was good, better guitar tone. Uh-huh. Now this one, you might think, oh great, well this is just going to be like a straight up black metal record. 
This is a weird, it's either a weird lateral move or a full circle move that allows Aldersop, the main guy of the project, to integrate the ideas that have sort of been plaguing him <laughs> for a long time, uh, <laughs> right? Uh, in some ways, this this record is not where we thought they were, he was going to go, but in some ways it makes more sense as a whole mm-hmm. um, and untying some of the knots. So I think we'd probably agree it is flawed and limited, but there's something about this record that makes sense. And what it is, uh, to give it away, is it sounds like, uh, yeah, it sounds like post-black, but, you know, not the better kind. Well, it sounds like, it. I mean, to me, it's like, I don't even call it post-black. It's just like one-to-one ratio black metal and screamo. Well, yeah, I mean, okay, that's kind of, yeah, I mean, we, we also, the word post-black is stupid, right? But yes, this is very, I mean, does that mean it's just Screamo? I, I mean, almost. The, there's there's Screamo's already black metal influence. Yeah, right? there's there's a lot of moments on this that are just Screamo passages, mm-hmm. um, but I actually really like them. I actually ended up enjoying the CP a lot. Um, it's, yeah. uh you know, the thing for Moldrion has always been that it had this, like, remarkably interesting conceit, but the the problem was it was just, it was trying to do things so fundamentally divorced from each other. You know, the dungeon synth stuff, the more sort of aggressive, grumbling, marble bog type black metal stuff. Mm-hmm. The idea of combining those things is cool. I mean, if you can do it, but I'm not sure how you square the circle of it, and I'm not sure anyone else necessarily is either. I think on a long enough timeline, you'd find a way to integrate those like really successfully, but historically, it hasn't worked that well. Um, however, there's always been a lot of interesting stuff to dig out of Mulder Yon's work. So here, here, you know, it's it's difficult for me to tell if this is kind of like a one-off. Like, this is just, oh, fuck, I've got these post-black riffs in my head, and I just can't get rid of them. Let's just do this and <laughs> go back to my, our originally scheduled programming. Or maybe it does signal, like, a shift in priorities. I hope it's not a one-off. I hope it's a sense of him finding, like, a stable compositional base. Uh, because, you know, you, you can maybe make it, this one does not sound as foresty or creepy or any number of things as some of the other records, but you can take this and make it that. Yeah, it, more, it, right? it does. You're right. It, it doesn't sound like that, but it does still sound very... Because the whole thing about Moldrion was the sort of tension between like old and foresty and like modern and youthful and digital. Mm-hmm. Um, so this one definitely has a ton of the latter. You know, it, it definitely it, feels very modern and youthful it, and sort of like digital age. You can, it's also not entirely, it is a different foresty vibe, but it's, you certainly get some of the trees and f- trees bil- swinging in the wind, right? Flowers billowing, petal, that classic, you know, bleak anime of petals blowing everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my girlfriend said it sounded very anime. And that she, oh, it does know, sound very anime yeah, in the sense that, it, like, like Screamo sounds very anime. Yeah, and, and that she liked it. Yeah, it's um, it it reminded her of some cool, uh, cool anime intros. Um, but the um, so I, I can actually hear the nature stuff here. And while I that, while I remember, he he makes very dense lore for mm-hmm. his stuff. Um, and often inspired by video games. But the funny thing is that here that it, it gets. 
in a roundabout way to really fundamental stuff. I think in part because he also spends a lot of time in the woods. Uh, and here is um, it, here it's something like I'm not gonna sift through it uh, now, but from what I remember, it is something like um, spring, like the god of spring, or the you know the, the allegorical figure of spring sees the goddess of the fall and is so enthralled with her beauty that he leaves his throne. Mm, okay. Right? And that's like the kind of plot that you would get. I, that's either like a primordial myth, right? Mm-hmm. Or it's a sort of allegorical framework for a 18th or 19th century poem. Yeah, right? yeah. So it's, it's a case of something being much more installed because he's so in contact with fundamental kind of questions and forces, it installs it in a much longer cultural history than the prominent legend of Zelda influence might suggest, <laughs> right? Certainly. So, so there's there's a real depth to this, and there's an emotional depth to it. If I could use one word to describe it, it would be tortured. <laughs> um, so let's get into it. Yeah, this um, is uh, this is this is some deeply troubled music. <laughs> yes. So uh, this is the I think to hear an example of this new synthesis. Um, let's go to the uh, the first longer track, uh, Leaf Loomer. So at the end of that sort of swirling ambient passage, the death metal guy heard me go, go! (laughs) Just, so this is a really well-organized section. Uh Um, 
The thing that really still ties this to black metal, in part from the overall sort of bitterness and spite, is um, the which you pointed out about. It has some of the connections that the austere record had. Right, mm-hmm. it's not as black metal as the austere record, but some of the same things. One of the things is at the beginning we just come in on that sort of uh, loping, uh, head down kind of. Uh, you know, um, furiously trudging mid-tempo riff. Uh-huh. Um, uh, that that's a very DSBM thing. It's a it's a kind of Burzumy thing. Uh, and the you know the rhythmic inflection of the guitar set against that is quite quite ugly or quite you know has some nasty push and pull to it. Uh-huh. And uh, but then over that, you get him really effectively using all the skill he's picked up with synth. Um, and he's focused on certain parts of the synth sound that don't bog him down in video game music land. Yeah, I gotta say, yeah, that's that's really the big thread that lets you know it's still Moldrion is those chiming music box synth tones. Yes, and he does those really well. They sound great here. They yeah, don't. dude, they don't they totally fit with the idea of like, oh, we're like a cool weird screamo band from the 2000s, so we've got a guy who plays synths too. And he yeah, can just do ne- stuff like that. Yeah. But they never get a tone that good. Yeah, right? no, they don't. It's, it's much better here. <laughs> yeah, so this is... And, the, the, and the, the way the aesthetic choice of that synth sound is a very black metal thing, right? Sort of eerie uh, fairy chimes. Uh-huh. Um, he's done a really good job with those, and having those rolling over this sort of churning, sort of churning angry rhythm part is uh that's almost a stomp that creates a lot of cool uh yeah a lot of cool cross rhythms and a very dense atmosphere um it's really neat and it shows all the parts meshing in an intuitive way and then we get the ambient midsection where he just goes full force with all the arranging and it's it's gorgeous right you can hear it's uh, and you can hear the the flowers and the flowers dying and the petals being blown, yeah. all that stuff, right? Uh, just swirls of energy, and then that there's that climax moment, and it's totally earned. And the drummer is like hyper blasting, gravity blasting. What is that? I, it was hard to tell. I wasn't exactly sure what was going on. I think it was like kind of like a. A curious roomy drum mix. I think it's just like a really fast blast beat, but I think he might also be doing some kind of like stuttering kick drum stuff. So it sounds I think unusual. What it's I think what he's doing maybe is uh, outpacing the beat by playing three against four. Oh yeah, three against yeah. Four thing over like sixteenth notes or something. Yeah, it's really it could be fast. that. And then we light into what is a. Uh, just completely uh just what it is it's just an early 90s or early 2000s metalcore breakdown the (laughs) the distinguishing factor is simply that the synths which do a lot of a lot to create continuity throughout the record are still swirling in the background but uh you just get retching puke vocals and a a, it's funny because the vocals and guitar sound sort sort of like the uh more extreme side of screamo metalcore, right? Uh-huh. But then the drums there are 
It's actually one of the less good drum moments because that's a very static, classic dum da dum dum da dum type metalcore. Oh uh, yeah, but I kind of I kind of like that we're just we're just doing the part there. You know, it's like completely unadorned. We're going right back to two thousands melodic metalcore. You know, <laughs> commit to the bit. Yes, yeah, exactly. It's, it's I, I can't really fault it. It's charming. Um. So that's cool. So you can hear there's a huge base of this metalcore and screamo stuff here. In some way, this record reminds me a lot of A Pregnant Light, mm-hmm. but with the mood being sort of introverted and negative rather than that kind of like sort of triumphant extroversion and affirmation that you get in A Pregnant Light. Yeah, I, I can definitely see that. Um some of my other reference points for this might come across as kind of weird, but I, I think they might bear out. Because I'm thinking, like, I, I'm trying to think of Aldersop's age and, like, the kind of stuff that would have been popular when he was in high school. So we want to look at, like, early to mid-2010s. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm thinking of a lot of uh, emo stuff, sort of, like, scene emo stuff, like a Skylit Drive or something like that as, mm-hmm. like, a, a touchstone for this. And a Skylit Drive is an extremely sort of pop-forward emo band, but they had kind of tougher, more, like more wretched moments on some of their earlier stuff. They're pretty cool. But let's go to um, Wiltress Queen of Flowers, the title track, at, right after uh, right after its intro. <laughs> and uh, let's, uh, let's listen to let's listen to Moldyron go full emo. I I genuinely like that a lot. It, it it's it's 
uh, I love uh, the usage of these kind of like more four on the floor kind of dance beat configurations or like disco beats and stuff. It, it, that reminds me a lot of late 2000s, early 2010s scene stuff. You know, there was sort of like, you know, a, a lot of the bands were kind of like electronic screamo. We're, we're doing stuff like that. All the kind of scene core stuff. And I just, uh, you know, I like how much this goes for it. I like how that uh, that final riff is literally just either a DSBM riff or an emo riff from the 2000s because they're the same thing at that point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I, I love how completely this commits to its conceit. And, you know, listening to this again a little bit more closely, you know, I like... Um, I like the fact that the Mulder Yawn chiming synth melodies are very intact. He's just changed the guitar texture underneath it. So I think this actually bridges the gap to his older material a little bit better than I might have given him credit for up front. Yeah, and I, I think it does it like it it does it while eliminating the sort of uh, bleeps and bloops, which were yeah. the part that was um, <clears throat> the sort of... Uh, yeah, while eliminating some of the synth tones that didn't really belong. He keeps just the best stuff that he mm-hmm. does really well. I mean, also, I don't... Is it a synth or is it real? Uh, bet nobody was expecting dulcimer at the end of that build-up. Yeah. <laughs> um, I assume it's synth, but... Yeah, that that was really cool. So a lot of these bell tones... Um, bell tones, it's sort of like percussive melodic tones that are that he focuses on um so i I mean well you know i gotta say it uh, it's like the flute for you on the last review Mm -hmm. i fucking hated those vocals then i fucking hate those vocals now oh the queens Um, yeah yeah i I think he just needs to auto-tune it a little bit and it's fine (laughs) no no like legitimately no if you're you're, go full crab core well no it's like if you're gonna do shit like this it's like i mean i'm i'm sure all the screamo bands are like slightly auto-tuning their stuff and that's fine i think he also just needs to deliver them at like slightly higher power because he he, right now he's kind of coming off almost like maynard james keenan doing emo vocals there's there's a sort of toolish presentation to them sometimes on certain lines which isn't bad i mean i i like maynard as a singer but i think that's a result of a little trepidation approaching them so he's holding back on the power to control the notes a little bit better not aldersop fuck that sing really fucking loud auto-tune it a little bit and just go for the throat you need to, yes, he, he's hitting under the note consistently. They're all kind of flat. Um, yeah, he, and that's, that's what people do when they're nervous because they think they're going to have more control over the note if they uh, crank back the power mm-hmm. a little bit, but it's actually mm-hmm. the opposite. You're way stronger yes. and you're going to hit shit on key much more accurately it, if you're going with full volume. And it's more fun. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely more There's, fun. You know, I mean, in music, right, uh, that one reason we all turn it up is that uh, quantity uh, increases quality. Qu- quantity affects quality. Yeah, uh, yeah. And it doesn't necessarily make it better, but it changes it quality. I, I really uh, just want to ask, it's like, hey, you know, Aldersop, when you sing along with Hawthorne Heights in your car, you're not doing it, like, under your breath. You're doing dude, it loud. <laughs> I, I, think, I think that's great. That's great advice. It makes a lot of sense. Because that is the main problem. Like, I have listened to things that have vocals kind of like that and enjoyed them. Mm-hmm. It's just, they have to be, right now, what he's successful, it, it, because he's hitting them flat and sort of tentatively, 
the nasal tones and the out of tune and the kind of like, oh, I'm just a little emo guy thing that I always disliked about them is like forefront. Mm -hmm. Um, If you hit them stronger, you could make it more like the kind of, uh, yeah, I I agree. There's, there's a version of those vocals that I would buy into. I was listening to the, I was listening to the carrier last night. Um, Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, and you know the stomp at the the thing at the end, yeah, it's more of a disco beat, but it's almost a two step, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, that's just a, a certain rhythmic motif I heard in a lot of those yeah. scene bands. Yeah. And well, I will I, just say that my advice for the vocals is because that's what I do when I sing along with Hawthorne Heights in my car. I do it very loudly. <laughs> I mean, the early another thing would be the early the first Planes Mistaken for Stars record is closer to just an emo record, mm-hmm. and the there's the vocals there are very emo, but he's belting them. That sounds yeah. really good. Uh, so, yeah, go for it, man. Put the mic above you like Lemmy and yell into it. Yeah, definitely. Um, anyway, uh, this is... Uh, here's a place that has a... We know that his cleans... Uh, he can do better cleans because here's a place where he does them. Um, this is a track... Well, I'll, I'll explain... We'll tell you the funny story about us in this track in a second or me but uh here's a track where he does some great fantastic clean singing more in his range and forcing it less just getting started <laughs> you know like that, that, that he's like winding that's the track works like you have this beautiful gothic cleans in in german he's seen more mid-range very convincing i'd love to hear more like that if you could mm-hmm. bring the emo vocals down a bit in pitch and bring those up you could do something cool um bring those up in volume uh but the um and then it goes into what's basically a Burzum riff, uh, and he just starts cranking the Burzum riff up, and I'm like, God damn, okay, play the Burzum riff for ten minutes now. <laughs> uh, or at least 
And, you know, in my notes, I referenced things like Verdunkelm, the excellent, uh, you know, Wad Van band that we talk about that sort of like gothed out Burzum. Uh, mm-hmm. It's very German. Mentioned for Jeblichite. But, um, and I mentioned a third band, uh, Rammstein, <laughs> as a possible influence on this excellent and very unusual track. And then the death metal guy. <laughs> Tell him. Oh, I I was reading his note. He got his notes down for this record before I did. And I was reading his notes on on a song called Rosenrot. <laughs> and I was like, oh, well, it's interesting that you mentioned Ramstein. And I got very confused by the notes. I was like, wait, so this isn't just a thought exercise? You don't know that this is a Ramstein cover? And then I realized immediately after that, of course the black metal guy doesn't know that this is a Ramstein cover. He didn't grow up listening to Ramstein and new metal like I did, so I had to jot him a text while he was at work where I said, I regret to inform you that your choices of influences were accurate, as this is a Ramstein <laughs> song. <laughs> Oh, too accurate. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, this is... Okay, so, yeah. So, on the one hand, I mean, it would be cool if Aldersop had just composed this song, which is amazing and my favorite on the record. Um, it would also... But, like, it's a great cover. Um, I would have been interested to hear him... I genuinely would have been interested to hear him extend it. Uh, like... I feel like with the tools at his disposal as a songwriter and with the tools and options black metal gives you, mm-hmm. you could take this and make this twice as long and do something really neat with it. But it's an awesome cover, right? No, it's really good. And I mean, the thing, it's like Ramstein is like, you know, people like us would sort of debate the veracity of Ramstein as a quote unquote heavy metal band, but they're, they're ultimately, they're just part of it now. Every, yeah, yeah. Everybody younger than oh. us just sees them as like, a straight metal band. Yeah, um, I I heard a few Rammstein songs. They made a deep impression on me. I, I almost immediately decided I was into punk and, you know, hardcore and too cool for that. So then sort of forgot about it. But the things I liked about Spieler were also the things I liked about I Am The Black Wizards. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Rammstein, if you... I, I'm actually a pretty big Rammstein fan. I've listened to pretty much their whole discography. And um, I guess there's a lot of Ramstein where it's just these are just doom songs or mm-hmm, something mm-hmm. with a slightly different veneer on them. Uh, I've yeah, always they're... I've always threatened to do a doom death cover of uh, Mutter because it's already a doom death song, so why not? Um, but yeah, so I, I I do like it when bands pull Ramstein back into the framework, not just for the cool stompy rhythmic stuff, but because those guys really do have an ear for a certain kind of sad Teutonic folk melody mm-hmm. that oh, contrasts yeah. really nicely against the industrial driven rhythm stuff. Oh yeah, they could have been a symphonic black metal band. Yeah, absolutely. That'll be their side project a little bit later. Oh, it's it's already their side project and it's anonymous. Yeah, <laughs> probably. So that's <laughs> Oh shit, I was trying to think who is that 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 one band that did that uh Oh, oh it's it's already their side project and it's Satagua. <laughs> Oh, Satagua. No, I was thinking of uh, I, I was thinking of that band uh, that only did one record as well as a split with like GBK and Absurd. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's literally. <laughs> oh yeah, that band. I was listening to that the other day. Um, yeah, it's literally Seegerblot. Oh yeah, Seegerblot. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's they're actually it's a Seegerblot. It's their side project. But all right, one more track. 
Let's go to Everbloom. Now, the thing is, uh, I've been describing a lot of this as like emo black metal, which is true and I stand by that. But when I say emo, I tend to include a lot of stuff that is actually just more direct sort of alt rock. Uh, because a lot of the emo I like best is the stuff that butts against uh, alt rock. You know, Texas is the reason, that type of shit. Um, Everbloom really does a lot of that and it does it extremely well. Ah, yes, I see you uh, enjoying my collection of ball-jointed anime dolls. Take a look at this one here, uh, Haruhi Suzumoya from The Melancholy of Haruhi Suzumoya. An exquisite piece, very expensive, very rare, difficult to attain, but the crown jewel of my collection. Me and her have a lot of similarities. We're both beautiful. We're both fragile. <laughs> 